Welcome to the Grand Point Church Podcast. I'm your host, Crystal Stein, and today's message is the second in our series called Made to Be. Last week, we talked about what it's like to be made in God's image, and today we're focusing on what it means to be made for relationship. If you want to let us know what God is revealing to you through these messages or some encouragement you've received because of them, we would love to hear from you. Just find us on Instagram or Facebook at Grand Point Church. If you'd like to follow along with today's message from Pastor Chad Shute, our feature verses come from Luke 15, 1-7. In this passage, Jesus is demonstrating to the watching world that his passion was all about relationship with people. No one would ever be too far lost. None have wandered too far. Christ was completely determined in his pursuit of people. Good deal. Last week, we started a series called Made in or Made to Be. And we looked at the concept of we're made to be in the image of God. And so I can tell you that just looking out from here, you guys are amazing. Uh, you guys are incredible. And I mean that. And even if I don't know you, I can tell you that because you have intrinsic value because you're made in the image of God. No one, no thing, nothing you can do can take that away from you. But the thing that I realized as we're continuing this series of made to be is that you're also made to be in relationship with God, not just made in the image of God. You know, it didn't take too long after Genesis chapter 1 where we see that, that man began to do things on his own. You know, he began to do what we call sin, which sin is anything that displeases or is contrary to the character of God. And what I realize is I go through about every day and realize that I sin. And because we sin, there's a brokenness in that relationship. There's something that needs to be repaired and restored. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a look at just how important is this idea of made to be in the image of God How important is it to the heart of Jesus? How important is it to God's heart that really people who are broken, who are hurting, who are far from Him come back to Him? And then it gives us the flip side of that that says, how important is that to you? You know, as we look at that, look at this this morning, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever felt all alone in your life? You know, that can happen literally. And it can also happen kind of figuratively as we walk through. I remember the first time I had a profound sense of being alone. I was about six years old. Um, and I can, this is one of the only things I can remember from that time, four, five, six years old, that I can really remember having a profound impact on me. And probably even maybe a psychologist would say impacted me of who I'd become. But as I was six years old, I can remember one Sunday, uh, we all packed in the car and went to church. My dad was a pastor, so he preached. But when your dad's the pastor, you kind of get free run of the church sometimes. And I know to some people that's a little weird. But as a pastor's kid, you kind of live here some days, especially when you're younger and can't stay home by yourself. You, you kind of got to go to church with mom and dad. Well, that Sunday afternoon, my dad decided, we're going to take all the nieces and nephews that were there for something, and we're going to go to the church, play in the church in the gym. So we went and had a great time. On a, on, a, on a Sunday afternoon. But then back in the day, too, you had Sunday morning church and you had Sunday night church. And it wasn't good if you missed Sunday night church. So we had to stay for Sunday night church. Then Dad packed us all in the back seat of the car. Yes, eight of us in the back seat of the car. And before you yell at me, that was before we knew we were supposed to put kids in car seats. So don't, don't get too hung up with eight kids. You know, we were kind of wrestling in the back seat of the car, driving home from church, having a great time. But somewhere on the way home from church, I got tired and I fell asleep. 
And so I was getting a quick nap on the way home because you go home from church and back in the day on Sunday night, you'd go in, get some kind of a, a quick dinner, you'd get your bath, and then you'd get in bed to go to school the next morning. So I was in the backseat of the car sleeping. All eight of the grandkids piled out of the car, or nephew, nieces and nephews, piled out of the car. The three adults that were sitting in the front seat, because back then they had huge long bench seats in the front of the car that three adults could sit in, they went inside and I was left sleeping in the back of the car. And all of a sudden, I woke up. And I woke up in a garage that was pitch dark. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. I just knew that there were other somethings in the garage with me. So I didn't, I can remember thinking, I do not want to get out of this car. I'm scared to death. And then your mind begins to play tricks on you. And I can remember at six year old beginning to think, you know what? My mom and dad love my other brother and sister so much because they didn't forget them in the car. And I'm sitting here forgot, what am I going to do? And probably only about a minute later, it couldn't have been very long, seemed like forever, my dad comes out and he rescues me from the car and he says, not, are you okay? He says, why didn't you hawk the horn or just walk in the house? And so for me, it was kind of like, oh, duh. But I can remember to this day that feeling of loneliness, that feeling of, of insecurity that happened in my life. And as I got older, I remember there are times in life where that happens. And there are people all the way around. You know, there are times where I can sit in a, in a congregation or in a church, and because of the weight that's pressing upon me, I can feel alone. You know, I can go to a mall with thousands of other people, and yet at times have an inward uh, lack of security that says, I'm alone. You know, I, I began to look at this idea of being alone and loneliness and the idea of being apart. And I ran across a study done by the Cigna Group this, uh, just done the end of last year that, that really kind of, what they did was they took 20,000 Americans from all over the country and did a sample survey. And they found some interesting things. Some of the things that they found was that only a little over 50% of people in America say they have a significant conversation or a meaningful conversation every day or today. And as I began to th think about that, that was pretty incredible to me. Because that means that there are husbands and wives and families living under the same roof or roommates living together or friends going places not having significant conversations in their life that bring meaningfulness and fulfillment. And then I began to think if there's that many Americans who say that, how many Christians say, you know what, I really haven't had a meaningful conversation with God or even a conversation with Him that has brought meaning to my life in quite some time. Not only that, they found out that members of Generation Z, which are adults that are 18 to 22 right now, say they, say they have fewer meaningful, converse, or fewer meaningful relationships than they had before. Now, this is the social media culture who views Facebook and, and Twitter and Instagram and all those other grand things that I have no clue what they are. They view those as social relationships. But the interesting thing is that when they took the score, for those that were significantly on Facebook and those were not, there was only a point and a half difference in the results. So all of you parents who say, kids, you can't have meaningful relationships because you, you have your thing in the, your face in the phone all the time, can I tell you, that's a bunch of baloney. Because odds are the same parents don't have meaningful relationships in their life and they don't use it. The issue is this, I've realized that when people come to the point where they get to a place where they feel alone, they begin to lose hope. They begin to ask the question, does anybody really care? You know, is anybody on my side? I'm not even sure 
my spouse or my kids or my family or my close friends or even on my side because I feel alone. This morning, I want to show us how much God loves you. I want to show you how much He goes out of His way to care for you and to say that He wants to have a meaningful relationship no matter how you feel today. In fact, we're going to look at three stories out of Luke chapter 15 that give us a unique look into God's heart for those of us who are lost. It gives us a clean look into His heart that says, you know what, we may have it just a little bit wrong. So we're going to take a look. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 1. And in verse 1 it says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. Now drawing near to Him was Jesus. And so they were drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling and complaining, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus began to tell them a parable. I'm going to stop here real quick. Because sometimes what we have to understand is, Sometimes when we read pages on words or just words, let me flip that around. Sometimes when we read words on pages, uh, we don't get a clear picture of what's going on. So I just want to give you a little bit of a historical setting here that tells us a little bit more about the, about the, the tension that's in this passage. Now in this passage, what we see, it starts off saying that Jesus was getting ready and that there were sinners and tax collectors that were coming in. Now how many of you love to pay, t- pay taxes? Anybody here? We're getting to tax season. How many of you are like, yes, I can't wait to get my taxes done? Now, I can tell you this. When I had little kids, when my kids were all under 18, I did not mind doing taxes because there was a thing called the earned income credit. You know. Now, the bad part is now all my kids are old enough, I don't get that, and I hate paying taxes again. But anyway, that's beside the point. But let me give you an idea what tax collectors were like in this time. You know, We don't like tax collectors, but imagine with me that if these tax collectors... The government told the tax collectors, you have to collect a certain amount from each citizen. So they went around, and maybe, let's just say for an example, it was $15 that they had to collect from each citizen. Now you may say, hey, I wish I only had to pay $15 in taxes, but hey, that's beside the point. Let's just imagine it was only $15. Well, these tax collectors would go around and they would say, hey, you know what? You look like you could pay more than $15, so this is what I'm going to... You're going to pay me $30 in taxes. You know what? You're going to pay me $45. You're going to pay me 60 And so what they begin to do is they realize, if I collect more, I just have to give that $15 over to the Roman government, and I can pocket the rest. So they would find any way they could to swindle and cheat you out of money. Now, so when it says tax collectors, this person was one of those people that you go, Ugh. you know, if they had Facebook back then, it would have been like the Facebook guy everybody posted about and how horrible he was. That would have been what this guy was. And then it says, not only were there tax collectors, but there were also sinners coming up to Jesus. And so there were these people that that did not live the same way that the, the religious group lived that this passage is talking about. And then it says this, the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble and complain. Now who are the Pharisees and scribes? The Pharisees and scribes were the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees were the people who would create laws so that you didn't break the laws of God. So they were the ones who, if you had a question about what God was, you would go to this person and they would be able to flat out tell you, tell you how bad you were, tell you how wrong it was, and didn't care because they were good. The scribes were people who meticulously wrote down the laws of God. They would take the Old Testament and by hand, because they didn't have computer and copy and paste in the day, they would literally write out hand, hand write out the Old Testament. 
And what they would do, they believed so much that you had to keep every letter of the law that if they made a mistake, they wouldn't get out their whiteout or an eraser or dirt and rub it out of the writing. They would burn the whole document, start over until it was perfect. And so you have these Pharisees and scribes, people who are viewed by everybody around them as religious, and they're standing there and saying, can you believe Jesus? He's meeting with these tax collectors and sinners. We're so much better than him in there because we don't even meet with them. From this passage, what we see is this idea of the Pharisees against those who were outsiders was incredible. In fact, one of the early reformers, John Knox, wrote this. He said, The Pharisees gave to people who did not keep the law a general classification. They called them the people of the land. And there was a complete barrier between the Pharisees and the people of the land. The Pharisees' regulation laid it down when a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret, do not even appoint him a guardian to someone who has no father, do not make him the custodian of a charitable fund, do not even have him as a guest in your home. In fact, don't even accompany him on his long journey. A Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of any such man or deal with him in any way. It was the deliberate Pharisaical aim to avoid every contact with the people who did not observe every single detail of the law. The strictest Jew said there will be no joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. But there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. Stop and think about that for a second. This was the idea that the Pharisees were coming to when it came to these people that were coming to Jesus. You know, it was basically this idea that I'm better than them, and so I'm separating myself from them. Well, Jesus is standing there, and he began to hear this. You know, he's understanding that this mumbling's going on. They're, they're kind of under their breath. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to tell a story so that they get the point of what we're talking about. So, beginning in verse 4, he turns to the Pharisees and he says this, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. And rejoicing, he comes home, he calls together all of his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. No, this gives us an unbelievable picture. Do we have any shepherds in here? Anybody in here? No, that's, that's something we don't understand. Would you, would you agree with me? We really don't understand. You know, all of us stand around and start saying, No, sheep are pretty dumb. Well, something I found out in, in kind of studying for this is that sheep are not dumb. In fact, sheep know their name. They'll follow somebody by voice. They'll obey some basic commands. But sheep are hopelessly helpless. You know, they have to be with others. They have to have somebody leading them because they can't lead themselves. It's not that they're dumb. It's, it's that they just are hopeless. If they fall over, they don't have the nimbleness in their legs to turn themselves right side up. You know, if they fall in a hole, they don't have the strength or ambidextry to get out of the hole. And so what, we, what they understood was that when a sheep was lost, it was a dire situation. 
They couldn't survive on their own. They couldn't live on their own. They couldn't make it. And so the shepherd had such an incredible love that he would say, I will risk everything to do it. Now, the interesting thing about a shepherd is when we think about the sheep, a shepherd knows his sheep. He knows them by name. He knows what their characteristics are. He knows where they're weak. In fact, a shepherd knows that there are certain sheep that don't do well when they're climbing on rocks. You know, they're kind of clumsy. You know, kind of like there are people who are clumsy. And so he knows that if we're headed up the mountain, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to make that sheep sure that sheep is on the inside of the other sheep because I don't want him falling off because he's going to stumble and fall. He knows there are other sheep who eat too much and get sick that he monitors what the intake and outtake is. He knows when the sheep needs food and is able to guide them to places they can eat. The, shepherdly, the shepherd intricately knows his sheep. In fact, this passage clearly points to the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd, that God is our shepherd. In, in John chapter 10, it says, I am the good shepherd, referring to God. It says, I know my sheep and am known by them. You know, what I can tell you this morning, if you are here and you feel lost, you feel like you can't get up, you can't move on, I can tell you this, that God knows your situation and He loves you. He knows where you're at and He loves you. Not only does He love you, but He cares for you and He protects His sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth His life for the sheep. The passage talks about leaving 99 in the back to go for the one that's lost. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? This shepherd is one and he's got a hundred sheep and he leaves them to fend for themselves. But that's actually not the passage. What the passage, what the, the shepherd would understand that he does one of two things. He either leaves them in a pen that protects them from the outside wolf or he leaves them with other shepherds that are able to take care of them. But his love for the lost is so great that he's willing to risk his own life, even his own safety in order to go hard after that one sheep. And can I tell you, even though God loves everyone, He loves you uniquely and loves you so much that He is constantly pursuing you, desiring to bring you back to a relationship with Him. You know, just like they understood that shepherd care for them, they would have understood that. And then we also know that the shepherd calms the sheep. In Psalm 23, it says He makes the sheep lie down in green pastures. No matter how much the outside world was pressing in on those sheep, no matter how many wolves, wolves were in the mountains that were howling, He caused them to lie down to rest. And He desires to do the same for you. No matter how much you're struggling in life, no matter how much life is pressing in on you, He says, you know what? I want you to be at peace. You know, what we see from this first story is that God has an incredible love for you. He's searching after you and he's finding you. You know, the thing is, I'm not sure those Pharisees understood that. I think they understood the value of the sheep just because they were monetary value, but I'm not, I'm not sure they understood the love a shepherd could have for his sheep. In fact, we come to the second story, the story of the lost coin. It says this, or what woman? Now, I, I want to stop there for just a second. You've got to understand, in this day, the Pharisees would have looked down on women as second-class citizens. We just uh, shared the uh, Friday, uh, the International Day of Women. It was great because I loved reading the stories about how women are changing our world and making a difference for the kingdom and a better place to be, and I believe that is wonderful. But in this day, when Jesus said, imagine yourself as a woman, he was actually promoting women to a high platform. But the, these Pharisees were looking and saying, hey, hold on. I'm not sure I like this. Don't compare me with women. He says, but this woman had 10 coins. Now the 10 coins ultimately were about 10 days worth of wages, about a week worth of hard work. 
uh, for her and her family. And it says one of those went missing. It says if she loses one coin, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now get this story. She sacrifices to find something that is valuable. You know, it tells us that she lit a lamp that was in the house. Now, all of us today, just in the, when we get up in the morning, what do we do? We flip on our light, right? And if you're like our family, how many of you, the light stays on until you go to bed? You know, because kids forget to shut off the light. You know what I'm talking about? Well, in that day, oil was such a precious commodity that there was no leaving the oil lamp on during the day because it was needed at night. And if you didn't have it at night, you, were, you fell prey to, 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 to thieves and people who wanted to take advantage of it and everything else. So for her to actually light that lamp during the day was an unbelievable sacrifice of the resources that she had in order to find that one coin. You know, she looked, she went through her house sweeping, and what does that tell us? You know, what she was doing, she was putting aside everything else that she had to do that day in order to find something that was valuable. You know, what Jesus was showing to those Pharisees and sinners is that the people that they were looking down on and condemning all of a sudden have value. They have value that ought to cause us to put down what we're doing today, to use even the valuable resources we have in order to go hard after that coin that was lost. You know, at this point in the story, I'm still not 100% sure that the Pharisees got it. So Jesus says, I'm going to come at it one more way. And he begins to talk about this idea of a son that was lost says in verse 13, or verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, I want you to stop and think with me for a minute. Not too long ago, I was preaching on this passage somewhere else. And so I decided, I'm going to see how this goes over. So I called my dad. And I said, Dad, I've got a brother and a sister. So I want you to divide everything you have and give me my third now and I'll, I'll go on my way. And he's a pastor, so he laughed at me and said, hey, you're preaching John chapter 15, aren't you? I'm like, yeah, I am. And he said, actually, I, what I would think if you were actually serious about that, he said, I would think, first of all, that you're just a little bit arrogant and disrespectful. And I began to think about that and I'm like, okay, what he said, listen, you know, it's not yours yet. You know, at that time, the, the, the wealth passed on at the passing of the father is a sign of respect to the kids. He said, literally what you were doing is you're saying, Chad, I want nothing to do with you again. I just want what you have accumulated. You know, as you begin to read the story, that's the feeling you get from the story, that, that you've got this young man who's saying, Father, I really don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to live with you. I don't want to be present with you. I'm going my own way. And what we read in the rest of the passage is, is a son who decided, I'm going to go out and live as I want. And he wasted all of his father's money. All the money that had been given to him, that his father had given him, he spent in, in just various ways. And it said an economic downturn or a famine in that time came and he had nothing. And he said, I have to eat, so I'm going to go work for a farmer. And he began to work for the farmer, but the thing was, the farmer made the deal with him that you can eat whatever you feed the pigs that you're doing. 
And so here we get the picture of this son who once had a great sum of money, now living in a pig pen or the place where the pigs live, watching over the pigs and eating the same thing they, they ate. So he was eating the cobs and the uh, slop and everything else that they would throw out just to fatten the pigs up so that they had a little something to eat. And I'm sure like many of us, when we're in that place, we begin to think, how did I get there? How did I get to where I am? And, and the son quickly remembered after a period of time that, man, my father's servants live better than I do. You know, my father's servants, they at least get to eat some of the leftovers and my father treats them well. And I'm sure he began to think, you know what, I, I don't have a right to be called his son anymore because I, I kind of took care of that. But now... I can at least go back and be his servant to be on his good side and, and at least to live in such a way. And so the son decides, I'm going to go back home. And I don't know about you, but when I let somebody down and I begin to go back home, it is not the most pleasant walk to get there. You know, the times I fail my wife or my kids and I have to go back, you know, I, I'm taking my time usually. You know, it's not a joyous run. It's kind of like, oh man, I, I know I've got to do this, but I, I, I can't, i got to get... But the interesting thing is, the father is sitting on the porch seeing his son coming from a long way off. You know, as I start to think about that father, the thing that I, I believe with all of my being is that father was not just there by chance. I believe the father was sitting there looking and watching for that son to come home and longing for that son to come. You know, I know there are times where my kids make choices that I don't like. And as a father, sometimes that breaks relationship for a time. And I can tell you this, each day or each moment, I'm waiting for my cell phone to ring. Or I'm waiting for my son or daughter to walk in the door and say, Dad, I'm home, can we talk? You know, that father was watching. And he says, I sees the son from a long way off and something amazing happens. The father jumps up, runs down the lane, runs to meet his son, throws his arm around him and says, Son, I'm going to bring you a coat and a golden ring which signifies that you are my son. Then he tells his other son and servants, go kill the fatted calf because we're going to have a party like no other before. Now at this point, I believe the Pharisees were starting to see something. You know, they're looking at these tax collectors and sinners and saying, you know what? They don't have a place at the table. They don't belong with me. But when we see the response of the other son, we understand that's sometimes us. The other son begins to ask the question and begins to say, you know what, I've lived here. You've already given his, him his inheritance and he's lived any way that he wants to. Why in the world would you allow him to come back into the home and treat him as a son? There's part of each of these stories that I've left out. And it's this. And it says in verse 30, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him, and you celebrate with him. And the father said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that I have is mine. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now he's found. 
When we look at the story of the lost sheep, it tells us that there is much rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. You know, when we stop and think about that, I have to ask the question, where do I find my joy? You know, when we look at the person of Christ, there are certain things that He is that we can never be. We will never be omniscient, knowing all things, or omnipresent. We'll never be able to be everywhere at the same time, or we'll never be omnipotent, all-powerful. But there are characteristics that we get to embody as sons and daughters of Christ when we choose to turn to Him. Some of those are love, grace, mercy. We'll never fully embody the fullness of those, but we can be stepping towards those each day. You know, there's one attribute of Christ that I'm not sure I ever saw before I began to look through this passage. And it's the attribute of joy. You know, he said in this passage, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over many other things. And I began to start to look at this idea of where do I find my joy? Now, how many of you in here are competitive people? Anybody? Like, I, I'm the type of person, if there was a game created, it was meant to be won. You know, it's, it's like, it, there's no other thing than winning. And there is nothing better than winning. And at my house, I get to do, you know, the dance of the winner if I win. You know, there are times where if, if I haven't won in a while, I'll actually jump up on the chair and do the winner's dance. And my wife used to tell me, you know, Chad, if you kind of do that too much, your kids aren't going to want to play games with you. And I would just look at her and say, it teaches them character. You know, and so, so to me, it's, it's that idea of winning. And there is nothing more joyful than winning. You know, greatest NCAA tournament. There's nothing greater to me than watching that. Well, I hope there's more greater, but you get the point. That is one thing that I love. And for two years in a row with our life group, I won our pool. So I, I'm doing great. I, I got to win it three because I got to win three out of four. But anyway, I get joy out of winning. You know, that's something that when I do, right or wrong, it's just one of those things I enjoy. But it's interesting. Because when I look at this passage, and he says there's more joy in heaven over a sinner who repents. Do I find greater joy in my life when somebody that I know or even somebody I doesn't, don't know turns to Christ? You know, for me, I've realized I'm all too often in the seat of the Pharisee. And I'm all too often looking down my nose at others and, and saying, God, I'm kind of glad I'm the way I am. You know, you may look at this story and you say, you know, Chad, what's the takeaway for me today? If you could boil it down, and I think there's two things or two groups of people that this passage is talking about. You know, there are some here who would say, you know what, I, I'm not sure where I'm at in my relationship with Christ, and I, I, I'm not sure that I can truly follow who He is. I want to tell you this this morning, that according to this passage out of Luke chapter 15, you are loved and pursued by God. He loves you the same way the shepherd Love the sheep. He would be willing to sacrifice, and he has sacrificed himself so that you can have a relationship with him. I think if you were here, you would say, just like the woman who searched for that coin, 
You are valuable. You are worth sacrificing for. And you are worth changing the plans that we have because you are valuable. And I believe from the story of the lost son, he would say, you are accepted in family. No matter what you've done in your past, no matter how your journey is, no matter where you are in your journey now, if you will just come back to me, you can be accepted and be family. But if you're here this morning and you say, man, I, I need that, I would encourage you, find me afterwards. I know one, uh, at least one of our elders in the room would love to talk to you and help you understand how you are loved by God in a greater way. But all too many of us are like the Pharisees. When we see the tax collector and the sinner, we begin to mumble and grumble. Now you say, no, I don't. I, I love when people come into church. How do your Facebook posts look? You know, all too often, what we see is us beginning to look down upon and talk down to and even condemn those who don't know Christ. Do you find yourself murmuring and complaining? Do you find yourself more frustrated with those who are far from God than you do looking on them as Jesus did as a sheep without a shepherd? You know, one of the things that I love about Grand Point Church is that 99% of the decisions we make, and I say 99 only because we're not perfect, but the majority and vast majority of the decisions we make in our heart is to make decisions because we want to see as many people as possible take their next steps to find Jesus. You know, that's the heart of this passage. The heart of the passage says there is more rejoicing in heaven when one comes to repentance, the 99 who don't need it. One of the things that our prayer for each one of us is that God would impress upon us the need to love, to sacrifice for, and to value those who are far from Him because that's what He does. Our band's going to come back up and lead us in one last song this morning. And this is what I would like to ask you to do. You know, whenever I hear something like this and begin to talk about people who are far from God or people that may just need to know the love of God in a greater way, one of the things that happens for me is almost immediately there's a name of someone that comes to my mind. You know, for me, usually it's that person who, in my mind, I'm saying, I kind of hope I don't see him this week. <laughs> Maybe they'll be sick tomorrow when I go into work so I can have a good Monday. Or maybe it's somebody who has hurt you. I believe if we're going to live out Luke chapter 15, we have to have the attitude of the Father, which is the attitude of God Himself that says, no matter what happens, I am going to run hard after helping people understand the love of God in a greater way. Dear Heavenly Father, as we hear a message like this, we fall really in one of two places. We're either in need of a loving God to rescue us, understanding that You love us, You see value in us, and You're longing for the relationship that the Father had with the Son who came back to Him. And Lord, I pray if that's us this morning, 
that we would quickly run to you and even seek out those who can help us move towards you in our journey. And Lord, for the rest of us, I pray that you would show us, just like Jesus was showing the Pharisees, where those places in our lives that don't match the love of the Father for others. And that as we walk out of here this morning, that our love would be evident to all. Even those that have hurt us, or those who we don't agree with, or those who we may have a different view in life than. And that ultimately, we would take a posture of rejoicing and partying and celebrating when, when the sinner who is far from you comes to repentance and comes to relationship with you. And we ask it all in your Son's name. Amen. The heart of Jesus is to offer and extend hope to all people everywhere. This week, consider how you, your family, your small group, or your coworkers can be more intentional about sharing that hope with those who might be far from a relationship with God. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Grand Point Church Podcast. Your next step starts here. To learn more about us, visit grandpoint.church. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we would love for you to leave a review on iTunes. Even if that's not where you usually listen, it really does help other people find us so they can take their next steps too. We'll see you next week 